You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Today on the show, I'm excited to welcome author Laura Davis. I'm going to read a little bit from her website. Laura is the author of six nonfiction books, including The Courage to Heal for Women Survivors of Child Sexual Abuse, The Courage to Heal Workbook, Becoming the Parent You Want to Be, and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, The Road from Estrangement to Reconciliation. In the course of her long career as a communicator, she has been a columnist, a talk show host, and a radio news reporter. Her other passion, aside from writing, is teaching and encouraging others to write. She loves building writing communities where people can find their voice, tell their stories, and hone their craft. Today, we're going to be talking about her new book, her first memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars, A Mother-Daughter Story. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. It's such a great pleasure to be here. I'm excited for a number of reasons. Um, One thing that we really connect on is this idea of storytelling, having the power to change the world. And here you are, a prolific writer and author of how many books now? Seven. Well, actually, eight. Seven books. Eight books books because I had this one self-published flop along the way. So I I never know whether to count that or not. It it lived in my daughter's closet for uh, her whole childhood. (laughs) She would just say, Mom can't you get those books out of my closet? (laughs) So it was really before self-publishing was a thing. I was ahead of the curve. So, you know, seven legitimate, one failure, many failures, actually. But that one, I actually got all the way through to production. Mm, That's awesome. So before we get started talking about your books and your writing, I would love to just have you introduce yourself to us. Tell us a little about your story and who you are today, and, and kind of like along the way, what is it that has really shaped and formed you into where you are currently on your journey? When I was younger and in my 20s, um, and I, I did a lot of random stuff um, and a lot of pretty extreme things too, When I, at the time I just felt kind of lost, like I didn't know who I was or what I was doing, and everything seemed really disjointed. But from the perspective of where I am now and I look back, I see a real through line through everything I've done. And, you know, on my website, I have the tagline, Healing Words That Change Lives. And, you know, everything I've done has been connected to language. So, you know, in my 20s, I was a news reporter, radio news reporter and talk show host up in Alaska uh, for a couple of years. I loved radio so much, uh, but eventually left it because... In order to have a career in radio, you have to be willing to move from place to place and market to market. And I I had moved so much in my life, I just wasn't willing to do that. So I gave that up. You know, then I started writing books. Um, You know, I I was a blogger. Um, There's just so many things I've done that have to do with language, you know, from being a speaker to a teacher to a workshop leader. And the other really common thread is I love groups. I love facilitating groups and I love the power of people coming together and sharing honest words because it's so transformative. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I started really my journey with words when I was a little girl. I think I I was working on my first story. There was a picture of me (laughs) pounding on this little manual typewriter when I was seven or eight years old writing my first story. 
So, you know, wanting to be a writer or being a writer has been uh, really consistent my whole life. And I've used words in a ton of different ways. You know, sometimes it's personal. It's like to find answers or to seek the truth or to understand myself or to make a really pivotal life decision. Um, sometimes it's to seek the truth. Sometimes it's to speak the truth. Um, I've used words to break silence. I've used words to confront, um, to grieve. Mm. And in the public sphere, I've often used words to provoke people, um, to inform them, to guide them, to agitate them, to educate, yeah. <laughs> to uh, educate, to entertain, and to inspire. So like all those different, at different stages, and sometimes even within the same project, those same aspects can be there. But there's always... Even if it's right, I'm writing a story, there's usually something educational about it. N not maybe overtly, but, I, you know, I feel like that connection between me and the audience is, or the readers or the listeners, is, is really important. And, um, you know, I've been a maverick. I guess that's one other thing my whole life. I, I quit college three times. I don't have any of the proper credentials for what I do. I've reinvented myself many, many times. And, um, you know, the last job I had actually was that job in Alaska being a talk show host. And that was almost 40 years ago, more than 35 years Holy. ago. So I've been self-employed somehow or wow. other um, since my first book, The Courage to Heal, came out, which was in, I was 31 years old. It was 1988. Um, and, and ever since then, I figured out a way, using language and words and community building, really, to to earn a living. Uh, and I don't even couldn't even tell you how I've done it, <laughs> but I've I've somehow managed to do that. And um, I think one of the biggest turning points in my life was uh, when I was 27, 28 years old. I began to have memories of having been sexually abused by my grandfather, and I had blocked it out, as many children do, as a way to cope with the trauma. Um, and I, I went, I was just in such a state of um, panic, anxiety, despair, and just, you know, feeling like I was going crazy. And I found a writing group um, in San Francisco with a woman named Sandra Butler. Um, she wrote one of the first books on incest called Conspiracy of Silence. And she was teaching this writing group for incest survivors. And I was, I don't know, 28 years old. I, I went to her group wow. and I just started writing and writing. I had already published things and been a writer, but I really used writing at that point as a time to work my way through this trauma. And I filled, I don't know, hundreds of notebooks uh, during that time. And soon after that, um, I was having a, this is kind of a, a, a weird story, but when I was I, after I left Alaska and I moved back to California, and I didn't know what to do with my life. Like, I just didn't know what to do next. And so um, I had a—this is a story I tell in my uh, memoir that I, I invited a bunch of people, um, friends and some colleagues, uh, to come over. And I was going to cook them a meal, and I wanted them to help me brainstorm what I should do next with my life. And so I, I had, That's like, awesome. these <laughs> flip charts— and it had all this stuff like, you know, these are the things I never want to do, like work for a corporation um, or have to dress up for work um, or, you know, have to have to obey a bunch of stupid, petty rules. And that I love oh, interviewing love people and I love writing and I love organizing and, um, you know, oh. and people said things like, oh, you should be the president of the United States. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think the, the qualities that 
I demonstrated at the time were really good communication skills. A lot of chutzpah, you know, I mean, it's just really a nervy kind of outrageous thing to do what I did. Um, and, mm. and no one there really solved the problem of what to do. But they, they, I had them fill out a form, what they knew about me and what they thought would be good things. I mean, this is like networking way before the Internet. You know, this, this was going on. So this was my version of like networking. And the, the, the thing that was kind of amazing was at that gathering, I had invited Ellen Bass, the poet Ellen Bass, and she had been my um, first writing teacher when I moved to Santa Cruz when I was 23 years old. And in the years since then, we had become friends. And I invited her to the party, and she had just published um, a book with a, a collective of other women called I Never Told Anyone, um, Stories of Women Survivors of Sexual Abuse. And it was this was like, I don't know what year that book came out, maybe like 1985, something like that. Really, really early in the incest survivor empowerment movement. I mean, it didn't exist then. And it was the first book where women told their stories. Mm. And it wasn't it wasn't some expert or, or some psychologist or some psychiatrist, you know, basically saying, you know, this happened to you and your life, it's very rare, first of all, and your life is ruined. And And talking about women as if they were these you know, victims. And so that was the first book where women told their own stories. And it was really well received. And I found out at that party that uh, Harper and Rowe, um, who was the publisher, they really wanted Ellen to write another book. And uh, she just had said no. But when she told me, um, I said, well, what if I write it with you? You know, and and she knew I had the the writing chops to do it because I'd been in her writing group, and she knew I was right. driven, uh, young, ambitious, and also obsessed with the subject of sexual abuse because I was in really deep into my own healing process then. And but she said no. She said, you know, she she's um, almost like a decade older than me. So she she had a partner, she had a child, she had a business. I mean, she was she had a full on life. And she, there was no way she wanted to take on another project like this. And she knew what was required, and I didn't. But I just kept working on her over the next few months. I would, you know, bargaining like, well, how about if I do everything for the first year and then you jump in? How about if I interview all the women? I love interviewing people. How about if I do this and that? And, you know, ultimately she said yes. And so, you know, she and I worked on that book for several years. And uh, when it came out, you know, I, I was convinced it would never get published, even though we had a, a book contract and everything like that, an agent, which I inherited from her. But I still thought the book was way too radical and that they would never publish it. You know, it was, I mean, we were lesbians, Ellen wow. and I, and it was filled with, you know, lesbians and it was filled with, you know, basically women being empowered and confronting perpetrators, you know, and I... I just thought the book was yeah. never, they would, I thought my, our editor would look at it and just reject it. But that didn't happen. Um, I don't know if it would get published today. You know, standards are so different and everyone's so worried about being sued. But it got published and I, you know, I just had no idea what would happen. And within six months, by just grassroots word of mouth, word of that book began to spread. And it became this complete phenomenon, um, really catapulting me into being famous for the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And and so, you know, I was really young when this happened and I wasn't I wasn't really prepared. You know, I I didn't first of all, I was I was in the midst of my own healing still, so I didn't have the kind of 
grounding, um, solidity in my own life, my own psyche, my own being to really be able to handle this sudden notoriety. Um, and also I was in a position where everywhere I went, people were coming up and telling me their incest stories. I mean, I'm talking about like following me into the bathroom at the movie theater or at the grocery store. I mean, it That's was just so overwhelming. Hard. Um, yeah. And also I, I, I was this one person in public cause I started, I was on the lecture circuit for a few years, you know, inspiring people, but on the inside I was still falling apart. So there was this, this, this mismatch at that time, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, congruent, I guess is what I would say. Sure. But it was, it was, you know, it was, it definitely shaped, that book shaped my life in so many ways. Um, you know, one of which, which is, is what I, that the, the story I would tell in the new, the new book is that, um, it caused me to be deeply estranged from my family because, you know, they, they insisted I was making it all up and I wanted them to um, acknowledge it. They wanted me to recant, and we became deeply estranged. So, you know, I, I basically I gained the world and lost my family. So that was that. that yeah. was a, it was a very intense time in my life. That was now like thirty four years ago. So a lot has happened yeah. between now and then. Um, but that that led me into my career as an author, and um, you know, I wrote other books wow. on that subject. I wrote a a book on parenting uh, when I had my son, uh, my first child. I ended up writing, teaming up with a parenting expert, writing a book on parenting. And then I wrote a book on reconciliation. So, you know, and then I started teaching because I just, I love the power of words. So I guess that's, you know, that, that's been the consistent thread for me uh, in everything I've done. Now, it's interesting because you talk about the fact that you know, when you wrote this book, there was so much that happened around that with your family. Have you, do you want to talk a bit about that part of your story and that healing process? Because I believe if I read correctly, you've written books actually speaking about that. Yeah, I guess there's one other thing. One last thing I want to say about the courage to heal was that, you know, yeah. I was, I had to deal with the fallout in my own family. And at the same time, you know, the courage to heal became this touchstone for millions of women and men also. Men, right. men started reading the book too. And yeah. it, it launched this empowerment of women to stand up and tell their stories. And, you know, it, it really, it was a precursor to me too. This was you know, a, this right. was a generation back. This was basically, right. unfortunately, we have to go through these same cycles over and over again, kind of pushing the boulder up the hill and then it slides back and then we push it again. And and our book yeah. was one of the things that was pushing it up the hill at that period in time. And um, it was, you know, when I think about it now, it was, in some ways I feel like I was meant to, I, almost like I came here to write that book. Ellen and I came yeah. to write that book. And to have that happen at such a young time in my life it was almost like whatever I did afterwards, it, it's, it's not, it's almost like it didn't matter. I mean, it was like, it was like, I felt like I already had done what I came here to do was to put this thing out in the world. And then it felt like, okay, now I get to choose what else do I want to do? Um, in terms of my family, I think, you know, the, the worst for me was um, being estranged from my mother. My mother and I had this embattled relationship and yet, at the same time, we were determined to love each other. 
And we, at the end of her life, we had this very dramatic and surprising collision course that happened. And that's what I've uh, written my newest book about, The Burning Light of Two Stars. In a way, it's a, a oh. prequel and a sequel to The Courage to Heal because it, it really reveals what happened with that relationship. Uh, we ultimately reconciled. Um, and, and the question of how do you reconcile with someone who has betrayed you is really the question that that book answers. And it was, um, for me, just an incredible journey to end up with her at the end of her life. You know, I had, I had consciously created distance between us. Uh, she, I grew up in New Jersey. I ended up in California. And I used to always say, you know, I went as far away from her as I could get without crossing an ocean. And that 3,000 miles was really important in terms of my being able to have any kind of relationship with her. I needed that separation. I needed that autonomy. Um, and at the same time, we gradually began rebuilding a relationship because we both wanted to. And I think one of the biggest influences is when I became a mother myself, I wanted her as a grandmother. And she really wanted to be a grandmother to my children. And so I think that really had a huge impact on both of us to try to figure out how to have a relationship. And yet there was this huge pile of crap in the middle of the room, which was the subject that we could not agree upon, right. which was my grandfather, her father, and what had or hadn't happened. Um, so we, we had wow. to figure out how do we have a relationship and agree to disagree at the same time. And that worked for us for a very long time, for a couple of decades, actually, and we gradually started reweaving threads of connection around things we did have in common. Um, but the, you know, what happens? Uh, the the opening of um, the book is is the moment when everything changed. She called me. She was eighty years old. Uh, she was already starting to have problems with her memory, and um, and she said, "I'm moving to Santa Cruz, uh, which is where I live." And I, it was like, you're, it, it wasn't a question. It was a de de declarative statement. And I, on one hand, I wanted to be there for her, but I just completely panicked and freaked out because I just didn't know if it would be possible for me to love her up close and not just right. with this cushion of distance between us. And so that's, that was the journey I was on uh, for the next seven years with her. And that's what I wrote about because I think, I think so many people have situations in their families where there's been a betrayal. I mean, it doesn't have to be as yeah. huge a betrayal as the one with my mother, which was like kind of capital B betrayal. It could be something smaller, but these things really stay with us. And then what do we do when someone in our family needs us? You know, what choices do we make? What kind of person do we want to be? Is it is it possible to to open up a heart that is closed for really good reason? Exactly. Right. It's taken me a while to really get to a point of what I would say is an understanding and appreciation of the importance of boundaries and healthy boundaries with people. And there's still something inside of me that really finds beauty in that restoration and this idea that there can be a healing and a reconciliation. What has that been like for you, that journey? You know, it's complicated. 
and it's gone it went through um, many many phases and I think you know we often have this idea um, that reconciliation looks a particular way like that there's there's some you know huge heart to heart conversation and everything that is unresolved gets resolved and then you either renew or begin a relationship that has really true honesty and intimacy in it and that's that's kind of the the fantasy of what people want and it does you know it absolutely happens sometimes but that's only one type of reconciliation um there are other kinds as well um so, I mean, and that's actually the rarest for that to happen. And, you know, with my mother and I, the, the, the second type is is agreeing to disagree. That was, we were in that stage for a long time where um, we, we just decided I stopped trying to change her. Um, I stopped trying to get her acknowledgement and she stopped trying to get me to recant. And we just stopped talking about it. And it wasn't denial because, I mean, I'd already written a whole book about it. I'd been on national TV talking about it. I told everyone of significance in my life what had happened to me. So it, I didn't feel like I was being silenced. I just had gotten to a point in my own healing where I was starting to move on. Like I... If you talked to me when I was 28, I would have said, and said, who are you? I would have said, I'm an incest survivor. Like, that would have been right up there with my identities. And But as time went on, it, it became less significant. Other things started becoming more significant. And if you were going to ask me today, I wouldn't even mention it. You know, I'm mentioning it now because we're having this interview. But it's part of, like, right. I would say, like, the fabric of the cloth that shaped me. It's, but it's in the background, and other things are much more in the foreground in terms of my identity. So as that change started to happen, I stopped needing something from her, like her acknowledgement, even though I, I, I secretly still longed for it, I think. And that, that's like, that's something I write about that, you know, there was, even though I sure. thought I had let go of it, 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 that little seed was still there of just hoping someday she would say, you know, Lori, that's what she called me, Lori, you know, I know you're right. I know it really happened. Or, you know, I know it happened to me too. You know, whatever. I, I really wanted that to happen, you know. But it wasn't on the forefront. On the outside, it was like, I don't really need this from her. So we started um, weaving different threads. Like we, my mom and I both love the theater. So we would go to the theater. Um, we like to cook together. So we would make meals. And then, you know, she started coming out to visit uh, in the winter uh, for a couple months and and coming out to, to California, not living with me, but living nearby. And we started doing things with the, her grandchildren. And so we started building uh, a relationship. So that's one way is, is you work around the edges of the conflict, because if all you ever have yeah. is the conflict, then that's always front and center. You have to build new tendrils of connection. Um, mm. and, and, you know, and another way is that one person changes, let's say me, I, I change, and the other person doesn't change at all. And in that instance, there's not that much you could do, but you sometimes can create kind of a cordial enough relationship that you could do things like show up at the same wedding together or some family gathering without feeling like you're just going to be gagging on your food the whole time. And so that's that's not, it's certainly not a full reconciliation, but sometimes by doing your own work on the inside, you can begin to see that person from a larger perspective. So it's not just who they were to you, but what were the forces that shaped them? 
you know, what was the generational trauma or the, the racial trauma or the, the trauma that they carry that made them make the choices they did or created the limitations that they couldn't go past. And so, you know, I, I felt like that happened for me too. I was able to develop more compassion um, for my mother. And also, you know, I, I started appreciating the good things about her and not always fixating on her flaws, which were many. So that was that was right. another part, you know. And I think the the thing, you know, when I finished, um, I didn't want people to read this story and feel like they should do what I did. And I actually wrote a postscript for people who are estranged from other people. And I basically wanted to say, you, you know, this story may be inspiring to you, but it doesn't mean that this is the path that you should go on. And that I would never recommend that someone re-enter a really toxic or abusive relationship for the sake right. of reconciliation or making peace, if that person is still yeah. actively toxic and abusive. Uh, you know, it's just, we have to take care of our own mental, psychological health first. And sometimes maintaining a boundary is the best thing we could do. And sometimes it's best to never see that person again. But, you know, even in the most extreme situations where that's the case, where, you know, keeping that wall up is necessary and the best choice for us, there's still a way sometimes you can, on the inside, have loving kindness toward that person from afar. And, you know, I, I inter have interviewed a lot of people in that situation, and they have been able to... It, it's almost like you light a candle for the person from far away, but you keep your distance. And, and that, too, can bring peace. I mean, I think ultimately what you want is a situation where you have more... You're not in anguish over the relationship all the time. And there's a lot of different ways right. to do it. It's not it's not like one size fits all. Mm -mm. No, I really appreciate that. And when you first started talking about it, the thing that stood out to me is that you said that you wanted and she wanted. And so both of you were involved in this movement forward in some aspect of relationship. And I think that's really key. I, I often talked about, when I think about her, I often call us, two souls who could not quit each other. You know, that there was there was something about the two of us that we were both very determined to keep trying to connect with each other. And, you know, one of the things we did, which is quite interesting, is that even in the years where we were not speaking, we were writing letters to each other. You know, like the wonderful old-fashioned correspondence. And I, after she wow. died, I found, I had saved all the letters she'd ever written to me, and I had... I had drafts of all the letters, like first drafts. I had the journals that had first drafts of all the letters I'd written to her, plus the ones I sent, which were often uh, much more modulated than the ones in my journal, which were like rants. Um, and it was it was very, very interesting to go back and look at those letters because I learned that we maintained a thread of connection even when I thought we weren't communicating at all. So, And I learned from the letters, too, that my memory of what happened wasn't always accurate. And that, that was really, uh, you know, that was really challenging was to realize that I had these stories about her that I had set in stone. You know, you tell the same, yeah. we all, you know, people always have, I, I do this with my writing students a lot, is that we all have these habitual stories and they're the, it's the way we introduce ourselves to other people. Um, sometimes it's, you know, to impress them or to, be intimate with them or to give the illusion of intimacy with them or we have these these 
wrote stories about our lives that we often tell almost exactly in the same way over and over again. And what I'm always trying to get my students to do is, what is the story under the story? You know, what is the part? I'll often say, you know, in the middle of writing, just insert the words, here's the part I never told anyone before. You know, or or, (laughs) here's the real truth. Um. And, and those those kind of, you know, inserting those kind of prompts in the middle of a, a, a writing session often helps you drop into a deeper deeper layer. And you can write the same story every day for a month, you know, if it's a big enough event, you know, some kind of pivotal life-changing event. And you'll write a different story every day. And you could write it from different perspectives. You know, you could write it from your perspective now. You can write it from the voice of who you were at the time the event took place. You could try writing it from the perspective of someone else who was there or a bystander. You could even, one of my favorite prompts, you know, for 25 years, this is one of the ones I come back to over and over, is tell me the story of your childhood from the point of view of the kitchen table. And, you know, if you write from an object, if you that. write from an object, that object, the kitchen table witnessed everything and doesn't have all your layers of story woven on top. And, you know, it could be anything. But, but writing about objects really is powerful. Sometimes we could access more of the truth that way than by directly approaching something. Like sometimes an oblique entryway will get more of the story out. That is so good. I want to take one of your writing classes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're online now, so you can. (laughs) Yay. There's so much we could go into. Um, One of the things that you had talked about when you initially contacted me was also grief. Did you want to talk about that at all? When uh, when my mother died, um, I... The first thing I did was um, every day for half an hour, I would force myself to sit in her. I had a chair that was her chair. Um, pretty soon before she died, she was living in assisted living, and she she needed something besides a bed to be in so she wouldn't get bed sores. And so I bought her a recliner, um, and I, I think she had it for five weeks before she died. So, um, And this this assisted living place was around the corner from my house, and my, my brother and my cousin were here, and they said, is there anything we could do for you? I said, can you walk around the corner and get that recliner? <laughs> so they walked over there, and they carried it back in two pieces, and they put it in my office. And I just wanted to have that chair. Um, and so after she died, every day I would sit in that chair, and I would just write whatever I was thinking or feeling for half an hour. And it was like I set a timer and I forced myself to sit there and I forced myself to go there. And I didn't have any agenda, but I just wanted to track. I wanted to land at least one place, one time a day on the page. Because I, I you know, I think maybe a lot of writers are this way. I certainly am. I could tell more of the truth on the page than in any other way. And, you know, I will go deeper and admit more and confess more and be much more honest in writing than I can uh, voice to voice. And often I sort things out first on the page before I you know, talk to yes. my wife or I talk to my friends or even a best friend. Sometimes the page is the place I go. And I will share things in a writing group 
you know, when I'm a student, that I wouldn't tell anyone anywhere else. Because the thing about writing groups is that, you know, if they're constructed well, which is what I've, I've built my whole career on, is that it creates a safe container uh, that is confidential and where what you say, you know, people, a lot of people write in journals, but there's something incredibly powerful about speaking those words out loud. And when you speak your truth, it's very different than just writing the truth. Because if you just write it, it kind of festers in your notebook. But once you speak yeah. it out loud, the impact of what you've said hits you in a whole different way. And often people might write not feeling very much emotion, and then they go to read out loud and they start to cry. So I always caution right. people about that. And then if you're in a group where you're being witnessed, not critiqued, but witnessed, and that story is being held by other people, it is such a deep relief uh, to have that, that experience. And then as one person, as one woman shares her truth, it creates the space for someone else to share their truth. So like, you know, someone brings up a topic for the first time, like it could be someone brings in a piece about sex, or someone brings in a piece talking about the truth about racism, or someone comes in and um, writes about being a gambling addict. Or, you know, I remember one time recently, someone came in and wrote about her son being a heroin addict. And the next week, three more people in the group wrote about family members who were addicted to heroin, because suddenly that topic was safe to talk about. So after my mother died, I would sit in this chair every day for half an hour, and I would just write whatever was there. Um, and I, I, what I found was that it was so incredibly helpful for me to do that. And I never went back and even looked at those notebooks or anything, but I, to, to ground myself on the page was really important. And it made me realize that writing is very powerful in terms of helping people process grief. And so out of that experience, you know, a year or two later, I created a workshop on that theme, which was called um, Writing as a Pathway Through Grief, Loss, Uncertainty, and Change. Um, and I was teaching at uh, this place that I love to teach called Commonweal, which is up in Northern California in Marin County on this beautiful piece of land on these cliffs overlooking the wild Pacific. And it's it's really a holy place. It's a it's a center that helps people with cancer heal, or not heal. A lot of them are maybe going to die, but they have workshops for people wow. with cancer. And so there's been, like, I don't know, 30 years of, of healing workshops mm. uh, on this land, and you could just feel it there. So that's where I was teaching the grief retreat. And um, it was, you know, seven-day retreat, and it was, it was just kind of amazing to see the changes people would go in from the day they arrived and introduce themselves till the end. And I think a lot of it had to do with being able to tell the truth and have it witnessed and, and to lead people through a process of acknowledging the grief um, and then, you know, telling their stories and then the uncertainty of not knowing what's next, which for many people is the most challenging part is that those times in life where we just don't know what's next. And I've lived by the seat of my pants my whole life. So um, I've had those kind of moments many times where I just was in between things and I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I just had to either take a leap or do nothing. And for me, doing nothing is way harder. If I'm in action and in motion and creating things, that's my element. But to just stop. Yep. 
and just rest. That's super hard. (laughs) That is so hard. And I'm in a stage in life right now where I feel like that's what I'm being um, pushed into. And I say that because it feels like I'm being pushed into it (laughs) against my will. (laughs) It's always against your will, right? Right. You know, I'm like, I want to rest. I love this idea. But what am I trying to outrun? What am I trying to avoid sitting with? Where, you know, um, so this is really good for me, too, because I'm a writer as well. And I haven't written in probably a year and a half. And I just, I I keep feeling prompted, like, you need to be journaling, you need to be processing. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to start journaling. I'm going to start processing again and putting pen to paper. But I've done so much as well within the realm of podcasting and talking to people. But as you're speaking about, you know, what writing does for you and what it does for people, I'm just like, yep. Yeah, it's true. There's a depth that you go to in a space that you enter when you write. You know, and for me, I would write and I would always liken it to being able to breathe. You know, it's like I write so that I can breathe. Right. You know, or breathe so I can write. I write. Yeah. Yeah, so that I can even process and just make sense of things because I have so many things in my head and then I'm like, okay, I need to sit down and process through this. And I haven't done this in a long time. Um, so, so yeah, I, I always, I, if, if yeah. you came to me, I would, this is the advice I would give you is no matter mm-hmm. what you've written in the past, you know, particularly if you've published things or written things for a purpose that during this time, abandon that and just do what is called writing practice. Um, and I, that's like the, the basic thing I teach at all my workshops, classes, whatever. It was designed by Natalie Goldberg. She wrote about it in Writing Down the Bones, but it's basically, you know, sitting down and writing without a purpose. And, you know, I like to write to prompts because yeah. it gives you something to do, but to really write without a direction for a while and just just embrace writing as an act of self-discovery. Um, I send out weekly prompts um, to my email list. You could, you could, you know, just make a commitment. I'm going to write to Laura's prompts for half an hour every week. You know, even that much would just yeah. kind of get you started just so that you're moving your pen again without a goal. And I think we're so goal oriented. And no matter, you know, I've published, like I said, this is my seventh book right now. And I still have to, I have lots of times where I don't write for months and months at a time. So just to to validate you, not everyone is a daily writer. Um, And I've still managed to have a lot of impact with my, with my words. And I, I loved being engrossed in this latest book because I had to I had to learn so much about the craft of writing I didn't know. And for someone at my stage in, a, in my career, that was so thrilling to realize I had so much to learn. And that, that writing is something that you could keep growing with your whole life. I think like if you're a musician, you know, or an artist, um, there are certain things that you just could keep getting better and better at. I love that. So let me ask you a question. What would you say is your, I think I can see, but what is your passion? Like, what is your life's passion? I think there's two things. You know, I I call myself a writing teacher because I am. But, you know, the, the real truth is that writing is just a vehicle. And what I really love is bringing people together in community and building communities Mm. and connecting people with each other 
in honest, deep, true conversation. And, you know, what makes me the happiest is after a workshop or a retreat or a class is when I see people are continuing their connection beyond what I've offered them. So I'm a community builder. Uh, so I think that's, that's a big thing, you know. And the other is really using words to inspire. And, you know, it, it, like I said, I've, I've been a troublemaker with words many times, but still it is inspiring people to action. It, you know, sometimes it's inspiring yeah. someone um, to read. You know, I, I, when I had a bunch of beta readers for the memoir and several people said, one woman said, she said, after I read your book, I picked up the phone and called my mother for the first time in 18 years. You know, and someone else said, I stopped many times crying, thinking about my mother in, a, in with a depth that I have never thought about her before. So, you know, that's, you hear that when you're, how you've written something, it really makes you feel good. So there's, that's I think, using yeah. words to inspire people and then bringing, to, bringing people together in community. I think those are the, those mm. are the two things that I, I love more than anything. Yeah. One of the questions that I ask everybody on the show is, what gives you hope? It seems to me like you're a very hopeful person. What gives you hope? You know, when I look at what's happening in the world right now, I, I often feel a lot of despair. You know, when I look at yeah. politics and I look at racism and I look at um, voting rights and, you know, there are so many global, you know, uh, global warming. There, there are so many things happening that feel way too big for me as an individual to do anything about. And I could easily fall into a place of despair and sometimes apathy, you know, or just defensive apathy, I guess I would call, call it. But, you know, when I connect with people one-on-one -on -one and I see the kind of transformation that happens in people when they connect with their own truth and they connect with each other in community, that's what gives me hope. So, I, you know, in some ways I feel like I can't pay so much attention to the onslaught of bad news. You know, I think right. like many people, I cycle through being obsessed with it and then pushing it away. Um, but I feel like, and also on the community level, I love the changes people make in their own communities uh, where we really can have impact that we maybe can't on a bigger scale. Yeah. You know, one, one other thing I want to mention that I think writing does is it it's an incredible form of self-care. And um, I was thinking about what Audre Lorde said. She said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It's self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it's not just writing in a notebook. Um, there, there's something about becoming empowered to have your voice that is... It does. It ripples out in your whole life. And we we have to take care of ourselves because this this boulder we're pushing up the hill is really big and it takes all of us and that you can't just be pushing uphill all the time, you know, where you burn out. Yeah. You know, when you've you've yeah. been an activist for decades, you know that you, you can't just be turned on, that you, you have to uh, regenerate yourself. You have to find ways to laugh. You have to find ways to have pleasure. You have to have ways to find joy in small things. Um, mm -hmm. I have I have three grandchildren. I had two of them overnight the other day, and just you know, what I have a puppy. <laughs> you know, I watch the puppy. I watch the grandchildren. They they give me a lot of joy and, and a lot of hope. Yeah. You know, and then it's back to okay. Um, you know, what's the next piece of work that has to be done? Right. 
Yeah. And it's so good to connect with other people doing this work. It's so important. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up and I ask you where people can follow you and find you and all that good stuff? Yeah, I, I want to say one more thing, which is that um, one of the things that I've had to do, um, because I, like I said, I've been kind of a maverick and have invented myself all along, is that I've had to be nimble. And I had a student of mine um, a few years ago said, you know, Laura, you're the most nimble person I know. And I, I that kind of introduced that word to me as something yeah. to apply to myself. And I was so happy she said that because it really identified a quality I have, which is to be really responsive. Like, um, for instance, when um, when Trump was elected, uh, you know, I was devastated. Like, you know, I was shocked and devastated. I'm, you know, maybe I shouldn't right. have been shocked, but I was. Um, and within a few weeks, I, I put together a writing workshop called Finding Light in the Darkness, Writing as a Pathway to Self-Care in the Age of Trump. And I did it like a one-day workshop, and then I did like a six-week series, and I made it on a sliding scale down to free so anyone could attend. And I just brought people together to process their shock and, you know, both help them grieve, express their anger, and also move towards activism. So, you know, that was—and I just did that really, really fast, you know, the way I put that together. Um, and I, I had them writing. I, I brought in—I had some therapists there in case people had a really hard time. Um, we did a lot of things teaching them skills in self-care. And so I like being responsive to what's going on. Um, and when the pandemic started, I did the same thing. I, I, when the pandemic started, I was about to lead a couple of international writing retreats. One was in Tuscany, um, and one was, was taking people hiking the Camino de Santiago— and I was teaching it with um, a, a wow. friend who's a, an artist, and she was going to teach people how to sketch and do watercolors. I was teaching writing, and people were going to create these travel journals as we hiked. And I do, I've done one or two of these trips a year for you know, a while. That's awesome. And they, that all ended because of the pandemic. And you know, all my writing, all my, teach, all my teaching was in person, and I'd always sworn I would never teach online. And within, I don't know, three weeks, I learned how to teach online. Um, I, I took my weekly writing classes, moved them online, and I created a retreat, a weekend retreat um, called Coming Home, Building Resilience in a Time of Uncertainty. And it was, you know, helping people answer the question, how do I find safety and connection in an unpredictable world? Um, how do I cope with grief and uncertainty? Um, how can I deal with my anxiety and tap my inner resources and how do I find resilience? And I just, you know, like I just created this curriculum and I brought in um, a meditation teacher. I brought in someone who was helping people you know, just with how to ground physically and deal with anxiety and, you know, created this weekend and then offered that a few times and then started a, a year, more than a year. Actually, the class is still going. It's called... Uh, Tuesdays with Laura writing through the pandemic. I'm just winding that class down. But I started a weekly class also that was on a sliding scale so anyone could attend. And I got people wow. from all over the world coming together to write about the pandemic. And, and the prompts had to do with what's happening now. And we tracked, we, we wrote about, you know, George Floyd. We wrote about Black Lives Matter. We wrote about the election. Whatever was happening currently, we wrote about. And now we're writing about what does it feel like to start moving back out into the world. You know, so I like that. That's one thing I love to do is be responsive to what's happening now and take this That's tool awesome. set and 
find a way to um, apply it to current situations. Mm -hmm. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate hearing just your story and and a little snippet of your story. And I'm looking forward to going and buying your book. When does it come out? The Burning Light of Two Stars comes out on October 19th. um, And you could buy it uh, anywhere that books are sold, it's going to come out as an audiobook and a paperback and an ebook also. And right now, if you would like to, um, you can read the opening chapters right now on my website at lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. That's lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. Um, and you get a taste of the story. Um, also, if you on that same page, if you scroll down to the bottom, um, I've put together a free workbook, which I think people in your audience might really like in, in relation to the conversation we've been having. It's a, a workbook called Writing Through Courage, a 30-Day Practice. And um, it talks a lot about you know how to write, um, the benefits of writing. And then there's 30 days of, I uh, used a lot of inspiring quotes and little bits of poems and things. And they're, they're prompts that really inspire people towards activism and courage. And um, that's available as a free download at the same place. If you just go to lauradavis.net chapters, scroll down to the bottom of the page, you can get that um, free ebook. Um, and links to all my social is on my website. So that's where I would go. Okay, excellent. And in terms of your writing classes, how can people find out about your writing classes? Uh, just lauradavis.net. Uh, everything about me and what I do, my all my past books, the, the new book, all my classes, workshops, retreats, lauradavis.net. Mm-hmm.